And good morning. This is Byline Mendocino. I am your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a bi-weekly local media roundtable where we discuss local news with local journalists. On today's show, I'll talk with Santa Rosa Press Democrat reporters Andrew Graham and Marisa Endicott about their recent coverage about developments in the PG&E Fire Victims Trust and some of the reasons people who are entitled to compensation for their fire losses aren't getting what they are owed, and certainly not in a timely manner. But first, a major victory for tribes and river keepers in Northern California this week. We'll talk with the North Coast Journal's Thad Greenson about the federal decision that clears the way for the removal of four hydroelectric dams from the Klamath River. Good morning, Thad. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Alicia. So first, will you talk to people about your work with the North Coast Journal, what you do there and what the journal is and you know how long you've been around? Yeah, I'm the news editor of the uh, of the journal, which is an alt weekly, a free alt weekly, in uh, located in Humboldt County in Eureka, California. And um, I we have kind of a unique structure in that I am uh, we don't have a managing editor, so it's a co editor structure. And um, so I run the newsroom along with Jennifer Jennifer Miko Cahill, who's our arts and features editor. And I showed up in this role in uh, 2014. So I've been there going almost nine years now. Um, and before that, I was a reporter for The Daily um, up in Eureka, the Times Standard, for about eight years. Cool. So your beat is really sort of Humboldt County and Northern California. But, um, but you do look at more regional issues as well, right? We do. Yeah, we, um, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on providing a depth of coverage that um, that isn't available in the daily or um, some of the kind of faster moving online uh, news sites that we have up here. And uh, so that does give us a chance to dive into regional issues and um, and report a little bit out of the, the confines of the county on uh, on issues that affect uh, local residents. So on November 17th, just a little over two weeks ago, um, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, unanimously approved dam removal of four hydroelectric dams on the Klamath River in Northern California, and I think a little bit into Southern Oregon. Um, mm-hmm. the, the effort was led by the Yurok and Karuk tribes over a 20-year campaign to restore the river. Talk to us about the news. What was your reporting? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, obviously, uh, you know, 20 years in the making. So um, a moment a lot of folks have, have been waiting for for a really, really long time and worked really, really hard to to make a reality. Um, so FERC's decision um, approves the license surrender for the dams from uh, Pacificor, a Berkshire Hathaway subsidiary um, based in Oregon, um, to the states of California and Oregon and uh, the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, which is a nonprofit um, kind of created to oversee dam removal. And so this is the last kind of major regulatory hurdle for this project. We'll need some other permits and stuff, but this is the kind of the tipping point where this project becomes a reality and the biggest uh, dam removal effort in U.S. history is is kind of green-lighted and moving forward. So it wasn't for sure that FERC was going to approve the dam removal permit or the, the license uh, surrender order why not? Why, why, what was the obstacle here? Why were people um, looking to FERC to see if, if this dam removal would, would even happen? I thought I had heard that there was a plan about five or six years ago to, to do this, but that didn't happen. 
Yeah, so this is actually the, this agreement that is moving forward, this plan that's moving forward is the third iteration of uh, a Klamath, the dam removal agreement. Um, and the prior two had, had kind of collapsed. Um, one due to, you know, it was dependent on a congressional approval and a congressional um, funding. And, um, and Congress just never took up a bill to make that happen um, due to um, some changes in the political winds um, back under the Obama administration. And then... Um, the um and then the previous iteration um um was contingent on a FERC approval like this and um but really left um as would have seen the Pacific Corps surrender the licenses just to the Klam the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, the nonprofit. And um I think it was in the summer of 2020, FERC um issued a ruling that basically undercut that agreement, saying that um Pacific Corps shouldn't be allowed to just walk away from these dams that um that it built and um and kind of this ecological um slow playing ecological disaster that it had created and that um, and it shouldn't be allowed to walk away from the potential liability that might come from dam removal itself. And so that sent kind of the parties back to the table to negotiate a new agreement. And um, and there was a lot of concern that Pacific War would use this as as an excuse to kind of scrap the agreement and um, and keep operating the dams. And what Pacific War has been doing for a number of years is the dams license are expired, but they've been kind of um, extending those licenses year by year and saying that, you know, they're working toward a dam removal agreement and stuff. And so that has really allowed the company to sidestep making a lot of um, um, environmental improvements like fish ladders and stuff like that, which would be very expensive um, to do on some very old dams um, and has allowed them to continue operating them as is. Um, and so, you know, I think when it came to this FERC hearing, I think there was a lot more optimism, um, but I think that um, folks heavily involved in this have been so battle scarred over so many years that they, they weren't going to, you know, count any chickens until they actually right. hatched. Well, what changed in between the the FERC ruling that said, no, Pacific Corps, you can't walk away from this by surrendering the license to the group that is set up to do the dam removal, which is interesting because it's like they're trying to to advocate there for corporate responsibility, but it basically killed the prospect for the, the removal moving forward because Pacific Corps was just not going to do it. Yeah. And I mean, it was interesting talking to activists at that time when FERC made that ruling, because so many of them agreed in principle with with the stance that FERC was taking, um, that there needed to be some corporate responsibility at play here. But so many of them, you know, also realized that this would, at the very least, you know, prolong the process and potentially really scuttle it because Pacific Corps, you know, as I said, was seemed very content outwardly to just keep operating these dams on a piecemeal fashion. Um, so uh, what really changed is, you know, a variety of parties were able to get to kind of go over Pacific Corps head and bring Berkshire Hathaway um, and its executives to the table. And um, and Berkshire Hathaway them... is the one that the the holding corporation that's owned by Warren Buffett. Right. 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 And so for for years, um, activists have tried to get Warren Buffett's ear on these on, on dam removal. And, and on this issue specifically. And, um, you know, there's a kind of this ethos in the way Berkshire Hathaway um, runs the companies that it acquires, which is that, you know, it's, it's, it's saying is that it acquires good companies and lets them run day to day operations. And so it seemed like there was this big apprehension on Berkshire Hathaway's um, part to really over to step in and take over negotiations for Pacific Um And, you know, what happened is that there was kind of this, this multi pronged 
assault, um, you know, on, on to get Berkshire Hathaway to the table. And so, you know, North Coast Congressman Jared Huffman held a, um, a, a congressional hearing focused on on the water quality issues in the Klamath River that really took Pacific Corps to task. And he, you know, essentially kind of berated an, a Pacific Corps official during this hearing. And that um, was during and- the pandemic, right? This is all very recent. This is yeah, this is all during the pandemic. And that's I mean, that's something that's really been extraordinary to watch, too, is just kind of these, you know, grassroots advocacy efforts that, um, you know, once took took the form of rallies and um, and in-person meetings and really seeing that happen virtually. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was a, it was a Zoom meeting that uh, or a congressional hearing that Chair Huffman oversaw. And so he was doing that. Um, the tribes made a, uh, the Crook tribe and the um, Yurok tribe made a very personal appeal. They wrote letters to um, to Ber- Berkshire Hathaway executives, talking to them about what the river means in their culture, um, and what they feel like its its demise has done to their people, and kind of urging um, Berkshire execs to come see the river for themselves, to come talk to them one on one. Um, and then there was this, you know, really grassroots activist campaign um, to draw attention um, to the issue. And that took a bunch of different forms from kind of days of action um, to where they, you know, got dam removal trending on Twitter and social media campaigns to, you know, some some I thought really interesting approaches um, like knowing that Warren Buffett is, is close personal friends with Bill Gates and knowing that there were tribal members who were Gates scholars um, and urging them to reach out personally to Bill Gates, um, to post things on social media, um, tagging Bill Gates, and trying to get the ear of people close to Warren Buffett, hoping that they could kind of appeal to, to his humanity, to, to um, maybe not do what was profitable, but was do what was right in this, in this instance. And apparently their efforts worked and so why did that make a difference why did going to warren buffett change the equation here well um you know i think that um pacific core was was caught i think in in trying to do its best by ratepayers and and be a profitable company for berkshire hathaway and um the decisions of you know what might not be profitable profitable but what might be best um are were above their heads and um and so you know i think the people involved um who were at these tables negotiating um felt like it was a huge win first to get berkshire to to kind of come and hear from them directly and then once berkshire did that they really dove fully in of trying to understand the project understand the science behind it understand the finances and once they did that, um, you know, according again to people at the table, they said that Berkshire really realized that the the science made sense and the finances made sense in that that dam removal was not going to cause some ecological ca- catastrophe that would lead to huge liabilities for the company. And so once they got Berkshire to see that this this made sense and how much it meant to to the tribes involved, uh, particularly in the health of the river. Um, they felt like it was a fairly easy sell that um, this is something that that Berkshire and, and specifically Warren Buffett, you know, who is um, is, uh, you know, is one of the world's richest people, but is also has a reputation for being a human and a good person. And um, they felt like he really wanted to to hold on to that. And um, and once they were able to appeal to them, they felt like Berkshire just threw its entire weight behind the project. And so um, the ultimate agreement that came in was. Um, 
you know, the states of California and Oregon agreed to put up and Pacific Corps agreed to put up another combined $45 million for kind of a contingency liability fund. And then Pacific Corps signed on with the, or I'm sorry, Berkshire Hathaway signed on with the states to split by three any liabilities that extended beyond that. And so once those pieces were in place and California and Oregon agreed to kind of co-sign, you know, be co-licensees um, for, for the period of removal, um, FERC kind of removed any anything FERC could point to as, as a potential problem, um, hence the unanimous vote. Incredible. So now there is a nonprofit that will, along with the states of Oregon and California, receive this license and start to be the people in charge of these dams and in order to move forward with removal. And you wrote that removal will start in 2023 so and be completed by 2024 so nobody's waiting nobody's gathering dust here this is these dams are coming out now yeah everything is going to move very fast from from this point forward and as i understand it they're already they've already begun kind of the infrastructure work needed to um to support dam removal so that includes you know widening some roads um, reinforcing some bridges to, to to allow the kind of those super heavy machinery um to get into these remote places where these dams are and so that's going on now. The first dam will be removed um, in 2023, and then the next three will be removed in 2024. And so, um, for the first time in a century, the the Klamath River is you know is due to be running freely to the ocean um, by 2025. And why is this so important? Why were advocates, the Karuk tribe and the Yurok tribe, um, and all of the environmental supporters of this, why was this so important to remove these four dams to the Klamath? The dams have had a, just a disastrous impact on water quality in the Klamath River, um, and so they they obviously restrict flows. They lead that leads to um, lower flows in certain months, and the biggest issue is higher water temperatures. Um, they allow a, a warming behind the dams, and that's led to um, al huge algal blooms that have choked fish, and um, and just explosions of the, these toxic bacteria that have killed fish. And so the, the most notable was um, back in 2002, there was a massive um, fish kill um, on the Klamath where 35 to 70,000 adult salmon um, were washed up dead on the shores because essentially they suffocated in the river because there just wasn't enough oxygen in the river for them to, to breathe. And um, and so that's the biggest case, but there's been, you know, minor fish kills since. Um, there's a big juvenile fish kill last year on the river. Um, and the the net result of this is just salmon populations have, have just dwindled and are now said to be less than 5% of, you know, the historic levels. And for the Karuk and Yurok tribes, um, this is just a reverberating impact that has been really catastrophic, honestly, um, in that they... Um, there, there's a cultural significance of the fish and, and the health of the river generally, you know, that they, they consider themselves river people. The river plays really heavily in, um, in cultural ceremony. Um, there's, I was talking to a tribal elder who was saying that there are cultural ceremonies that have, um, you know, tribal leaders essentially bathe in the river that have had to be suspended some years because of toxic algae in the river. Um, and then the, there's the subsistence element, which is salmon has been a cornerstone of, of these tribes' diets for, um, you know, for, for millennia, and that, that has been taken away. And so there's a health element, and then there's also the economic impact that these tribes have depended on, on these fisheries um, you know, to, um, to sustain their, their economies and, and put, um, you know, provide for their families. So it's been this just kind of reverberating disaster for, for these tribes that, um, 
has um, yeah has just been playing out in slow motion over the course of decades. Right, because the dams have been there for uh, at least one of them has been there for a hundred over a hundred years. This has been yeah. a, a century long impact. Um, all right, well, Thad Greenson, thank you so much for joining me on Byline Mendocino here on KZYX to tell us about. Your reporting on the Klamath Dam situation, and where can people follow your ongoing coverage? Yeah, thank you. It's been a, been an absolute pleasure, and uh, all of our coverage is at uh, northcoastjournal.com, and uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Thaddeus Greenson. Cool, and you're going to continue to cover the dam removal. Oh, absolutely. Yep, every step of the way. Wonderful. Okay, thanks. It's been great talking with you, and really appreciate your coverage. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. And that was Thaddeus Greenson. He's the news editor for the North Coast Journal, who has been covering FERC's approval of the dam removal of four hydroelectric dams on the Klamath River. When we come back, I will be talking with Andrew Graham and Marisa Endicott of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat about their reporting on the latest developments in the PG&E Fire Victims Trust. Stay tuned. I just got good news. This is Alicia Bales. You're listening to Byline Mendocino here on KZYX. Uh, I come to you every other Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. and I talk about local news with local newsmakers. My next guests are Andrew Graham and Marisa Endicott. They are reporters for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, and they're joining me to talk about their recent coverage of the PG&E Fire Victims Trust, some of the reasons that people who are entitled to compensation for their fire losses aren't getting what they are owed, certainly not 100% of what they are owed, and certainly not in a timely manner. They had two articles this week. Uh, Corporate claims tie up $1.3 billion on Sunday, November 27th, and trust sees $1 billion infusion on Monday, November 28th. So this is very timely, but also pretty complicated. Um, The PG&E Fire Victims Trust is not super straightforward or accessible. So I wanted to talk with Andrew and Marisa about their coverage and get a little bit more information that hopefully can help us all understand what's going on with the Fire Victims Trust and how people can uh, can follow it and access what you are owed if you were impacted by the, the fires. Uh, of course, we have hundreds of families in our county who were impacted by the 2017 Redwood Complex fire Um, And this is a a regional issue. So this is my interview with Andrew Graham and Marisa Endicott. So let's start by um, having you each introduce yourselves and talk about what you do at the Press Democrat and, you know, what your focus is and how long you've been there. So I'm Marisa Endicott. Um, I'm the investigative columnist for the Press Democrat. I basically uh, write a column in which um, all of my stories are kind of directed by reader inquiries and uh, understandably, a lot of those inquiries have centered on the Fire Victim Trust. So that's kind of what led me into this. Um, I started not too long ago, actually, in um, January. So I'm fairly new, but um, I'm from the area, the general area. So, yeah. OK, so you get inquiries from readers of the Press Democrat who want to know about stuff. What are some questions that you followed up on since you've been here? Um, 
Oh man, they've been all over the map. There's a lot of housing related um, questions, a lot to do with like renters issues, understandably. Um, I've gotten inquiries about um, um, cemeteries. I've gotten inquiries about <clears throat> like COVID testing sites and whether they're legitimate. Um, so I've been very lucky to get to kind of dig into, go down all sorts of rabbit holes. Yeah, what a neat feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew, what about you? Yeah, I'm a um, just a traditional investigative reporter at the Press Democrat. I'm on the investigations and enterprise team. Um, my focus is technically business, but you were a small paper, so I'm also kind of all over the place. Um, and I started working on fire victim trust stuff sometime this spring. I covered the Kincaid prosecution, and that got me into um, PG&E. And from there, I ended up, I just heard, kind of like Marie said, we hear a lot about the trust, and it's a topic on a lot of people's minds. So, um, and I've been at the Press Democrats since February 2021. So we're both fairly new. Got it. And we rely on you because it's so complicated and there's such a long through line for the Fire Victims Trust um, that reporters like you who are covering it from, like you said, the Kincaid Fire Prosecution through each of these many chapters, uh, we're hoping this morning that you can sort of help us understand. You've had two articles, at least in the last week, about the Fire Victims Trust, one about um, several a billion dollars worth of the trust being tied up by three corporations, uh, which is just so so counterintuitive in terms of thinking about what the Fire Victims Trust is supposed to do and how it's actually functioning. And then another story uh, a couple of days ago um, talking about how the, the part of the trust that is in uh, shares, as in stock for PG&E, is actually, there's some movement there because the stock seems to be recovering. So if we could sort of uh, give the relevant background for what we need to know to understand these stories and then talk about each of them, I would that would be great. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think the common thread in a lot of these stories is that, you know, it all kind of goes back to the fact that the deal was originally made with half stock, half cash, which was always going to be always predicted to be problematic. But what we've heard is that, you know, many people sort of felt was their only option to kind of approve that deal. Um, And that's kind of where, and I guess we can take the sort of stock sales situation first, and then we can go to the the business. Sure. And who who are the fire victims? What's the trust right. it, supposed to do for them? Right. So the trust, and I mentioned the Kincaid fire because that's what got me into PG&E, but the, that's actually not, um, those victims aren't part of the trust. The trust covers victims of PG&E started wildfires. Uh, the, the earliest one is the 2015 Butte fire. And then the it goes to the 2018 campfire, the, the Paradise fire, the, the most deadly wildfire in California history. Um, that was the one that I, that plus the 2017 North Bay firestorms. So the Tubbs fire, um, the Nuns fire, the Atlas fire. And we should note the Tubbs fire is the only one in this mix where um, PG&E has not been found to have, have officially caused it. Right. Um, and we have they, um, several hundred fire victims here in Redwood Valley from the Redwood Complex fire who are part of that 2017 firestorm as well. Absolutely. 
And so the, the liabilities from that 2017 fires and the, the campfire pushed PG&E into bankruptcy. Um, and all these victims' claims for, for property and in some cases, lives uh, lost, livelihoods lost, that all ended up um, for PG&E to emerge from bankruptcy. All those claims ended up in the, the money for those people was in this trust. But PG&E said, or the, the idea at the time was there wasn't enough cash to just have a pot of cash. So what you end up with is a $13.5 billion fund, right? And half of it is cash and half of it is utility stock, PG&E stock. So these victims end up whole, sort of tied to the stock, not sort of, they're, they're, they're tied to the stock of the same company responsible for the fires that ruined, wrecked their lives. Right. And it's worth noting that, you know, other stakeholders, insurance companies and, um, you know, um, other groups that like were vying for a piece of PG&E's bankruptcy were able to kind of make out with quite either all cash deals or um, come out and be able to profit off that, which kind of um, adds a little insult to injury. Right. It yeah. really just shows you that I mean, these are just people, you know, they're not companies, they're not creditors, they're just people whose lives were destroyed by and, and were found to be uh, entitled to these damages from PG&E. Like they, saying PG&E destroyed their lives is not hyperbole. The court found that to be true and that PG&E owes them some kind of con compensation to make them whole. So, uh, But they're not powerful. They're just neighbors. Yeah, and that's kind of the underlying theme in a lot of this is who, how these big powerful interests um, have one result and these small, the individual people have another result. I guess that could take us into that billion dollar story if you want to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the the three corporations who are claiming a billion dollars in um, entitlement to this trust. Yeah. Um, so while it's called the Fire Victim Fund, and we think a lot about the individuals who make up that fund and the claims in that fund, there was also a sort of limited group of public entity agencies and companies um that were considered fire victims and were able to sort of make claims um and get paid out of this this victim fund um as and um so that's kind of like where they come from and so with um these three corporations what we found was uh adventist healthcare system actually makes up the vast majority of those claims but um in a little a further wrinkle is that those all of those kind of companies were able to secure what's called judicial review, which basically allows them to, um, if they're not happy with what the trust decides is fair for them, they're able to sue in court. And that is a right that most other fire victims, individuals did not get. So, of course, that gives certain leverage to these companies who are coming in with these huge claims um, that uh, other fire victims aren't afforded. Um, and uh, if you wanted to add a little bit about Adventist, I don't know. But... Sure. And, did, did we, and then the other two are eight. Okay. So there's three corporations in this mix. Adventist, which is they're a healthcare, they're a, a faith-based nonprofit, but they're a, a very large healthcare company that operated in uh, paradise. And they're um, claiming, did you say a billion dollars in damages for their damage to their hospital in um, paradise? 
Yeah, it, it's a it's a little comp, complicated. We um, what we weren't able to do is confirm exactly what they're claiming right now. But what we could see was that at the beginning of the bankruptcy, they were seeking one point three billion. Uh, that included a hospital in paradise. It also included five hundred million in punitive damages. So you know when you say you bring a lawsuit, you get reimbursed for your property, and then the judge tax on punitive damages. They they were trying to do that in the bankruptcy. Um, so we don't know exactly where they are in front of the trust, what they're asking for now. But we know that at one point they were asking for one point three billion. Comcast was asking for uh, like ninety some million. And then AT&T is asking for, uh, I want to say like 230 million um, and AT&T and Com- we don't, uh, we never heard from AT&T, but Comcast tells us their claim is around utility or like infrastructure, telecom infrastructure destroyed by the fire. And so then, so if you take so, all that together, I mean, 90 million or 200, I mean, these are enormous amounts of money, but in terms of like yeah. telecommunications infrastructure, it doesn't it doesn't really sound that far off the mark or is it? We, we don't really know. Um, you know, the, the, the question, well, the one question is why, right. Maybe it's, maybe it's kind of more appropriate some, but why are they in there with this person who's a uh, home that they built with their burned down, you know? And then, um, but Adventus is the one that I think has really raised people's eyebrows. It's, you know, early on, lawyers for fire victims were calling it totally overblown and exaggerated and trying to keep um, keep them out of the trust, keep them from having this ability, the judicial review that Marisa was talking about, because of exactly what is kind of happening now. And so what we do know is these three companies today are asking for around a billion altogether. And we don't know the individual breakdowns um, that we're told that's privileged information we weren't able to find in the public record. So what we have to do is kind of look back at those early first round of claims. So and and I think it's just like, you know, it's just another kind of obstacle in this fund that has been like is far from being made whole. Right. Um, it's like another kind of indication that it's pretty far from being all resolved because, you know, because they have this right to like potentially sue if they're not happy with what they're able to negotiate with the trust, the trust has to hold that all back until everything's resolved. That entire amount. So that's like another billion that has to be like set aside for now. Right. And so all that, the while, right. That means that the the money that could be paid out to the individual neighbor people, just individual mon paws or mon maws or pawn paws or whoever, um, <laughs> they're not. That money is not available for them because it's tied up in this judicial review process of a billion dollars for these corporations, right? And they're able to pay lawyers and legal teams to fight this out for years if it need be. Correct. Yeah. And. Um, and, and I think, and at the same time, your your ma and ma's or whatever your your different individuals are getting paid at a rate of forty five percent of their claims at the most. At the most, if right. we've seen that, and because that's what the fire victim trust can pay out now with the amount of money they have. But again, you know, even setting aside the corporations, we still don't know exactly what the stock's going to do, right. and there's kind of all these things that make that a complicated process. So you know, it just like you know, makes a bigger question mark for the victims and when they're actually going to see the what they're owed and if they're going to see what they're owed. And what does this mean for fire victims? I mean, I, I can imagine, like, if you're trying to rebuild your house and you only have 45% of the money that you're owed to do it, it's going to put 
quite a damper on your future. But have you talked with any of the fire victims? Do you do you have any examples of the kinds of impacts this is having on people's lives? Yeah, we've heard a lot of tough stories. Um, yeah, and I think like, you know, there's the logistical and like physical challenge of not being able to rebuild your home with people either like partway through people, um, you know, and but then there's an entire emotional component as well, where like, you know, this this sort of limbo state of not being able to like put this behind them or try to put this behind them and not know, you know, I've spoken with some people that are like really like um, in their older years and their children and grandchildren are worried that they're never, they're never going to see that compensation, um, you know, before they pass. And there's just a lot, um, you know, there's a lot preventing these people from kind of moving on with their lives. One story that stuck with me, although Marisa was the one who reported it. So I'll probably, but the guy, there was a guy who, just the uncertainty was too much and he sold his property and I don't, it, his house hadn't even burned. Right. It was like, yeah, that was really interesting. I mean, essentially his, his property actually was spared because he had done a lot of work around um, it and you know, that plus luck. Um, but he was surrounded by all these huge trees and these trees cost thousands and thousands of, they were dying and falling and causing hazards. And just to get those removed caused cost, like costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And, you know, he was older. He was like working dawn to dusk every night to try to do it himself. Um, they couldn't afford it. And, you know, he had this is this is a home that he built and been in forever. And eventually it was like causing him health problems. It was causing him stress. And his wife and his family and doctor finally like convinced him that he just like couldn't keep going like that. And they ended up selling it at way below value. Yeah, considerable because loss. they hadn't received, they didn't know how much they were going to receive when, and they were just bleeding money and just trying to like maintain what was there. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of like irreversible, you know, irreversible things that happen yeah. when you have to wait this long. So for your 2017, I mean, it's been five years. Um, and if you've gotten anything, you've been paid at 45% of your loss. And that just started happening this last year. Um, the, if you're a 2015 Butte fire victim, you're looking at uh, seven years. I mean, it's just, it's a very long way to be made whole. And there's still people living in trailers. There's people, um, you know, that this has really had kind of irrevocable um, problems for. And so... All right. And that's um, even that's just the, the part of the the fire victims trust that's in cash. And then you have the other half that's in stocks. So, OK, and this is the part that I just can't even wrap my head around. Like, what is going on with the stocks? I mean, I, I can wrap my head around the part that's like, here, take some of our worthless stock of our company. Well, at the time they were bankrupt. Right. So uh, individuals and, you know, See what you can do with it. But that's actually not how this works, right? That they actually need to sure. sell the stock in order to cash out. Please help us understand what is happening with the stock and, and what kind of what this means for the fire victims. Right. I mean, so this is really complicated and the trust has to hire like an entire team of 
financial advisors and economists to help them. And you have to have people looking at the market and deciding when the strategic time to sell is. And you can only sell in certain blocks and you have to sell it at discounts because the stock market has these ways of being able to sort of like demand or put that pressure on the trust because basically you have a bunch of people, you know, financially savvy people that know that the trust has to offload this stock at some point to make the victims whole. So it really puts them in a position where, you know, people can look at that and take advantage of it, I guess. Um, and, um, you know, and, and the stock has been really like way below where it needs to be several dollars per share lower than it needs to be to like even ostensibly make the, um, the fund whole. Um, and, and then recently there has been in the last couple months, like end of September, it has actually yeah. increased significantly in part because it was added back to the S&P, um, which is like, you know, one of the main stock indexes. So that gave it a boost and it seems Were to be they kicked out. Much- was pg kicked out when they went bankrupt? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um and and so basically that has seemed to boost it and it's now around like 14 to 15. 15 yeah. yeah, it's been like that in the last uh, month or two, which has enabled the the uh, trust to make a couple chunks of sale, um, which has brought in about a billion dollars. Yeah, chunks of sale. Each one is like hundreds yeah, right. of millions of shares, right? Right. They're Within, large. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that is good news of course that doesn't guarantee that you know the end is near i guess and what's also just what we recently learned and confirmed with the trust is that um to sell these giant chunks of shares the trust the trust and the trust traders uh kind of have to accept a discount and it's sort of high level stuff but it, it boils down to you know you're do you want to try and sell a hundred million shares piece by piece, or do you want one buyer to take it? And then when we talked to, we talked to a, a couple of just or a professor and like economist people about this, do you want this one buyer, you know, the buyer who's willing to take those shares has a little leverage over you. It's not a great situation to be in if you're the seller, especially when, like Marisa said, everyone on wall street knows that the trust has to sell. Their goal is to sell. It's not to hold stock. And so it, it creates, so the discounts we got, um, so what we've learned, what the stock, what the trust tells us is that they're selling at a discount of between 3.8 to 6.3% off the listed share. So if those share price is $15 and 50 cents, the trust is selling, you know, from three to 6% below that, um, which obviously I don't, that was never, people didn't know that when they agreed to this deal. It's just one more kind of aspect of, um, this wasn't a good deal for victims, and uh, and what this what this means for people waiting to be made whole is you okay the stock price it looks like it's at a place where it's stabilizing. You actually need it to go higher if there's any hope, any hope of people getting sort of paid out at 100 of their claim. So so it's yeah it's very complex, but it's just another um, the way this professor put it that I thought was pretty good. It's just there's lots of people out there who are very smart stock traders. And they kind of are, you know, all they're doing is looking for the opportunity to to make deals and make money. And in that way, I think the trust is. Um, Definitely at a disadvantage. Yeah, it's a disadvantage. So. Right. I mean, if, if you were um, 
impacted by PG&E's negligence and lost your home or lost a family member, God forbid, uh, you're not necessarily a stockbroker. No, you don't. Although there have... are a couple out there, and they talk, and they've gotten in touch with us, but but no, you're right. Right, it's like you don't. You're you're now thrust into this sort of milieu where you don't have any sort of power to to make this work in in your for for your benefit. Um, right. You're just sort of at the mercy of the of the way that the stock market works. I wonder. You said um, half of the. Or I guess the reporting is that half of the thirteen point five billion dollar fund is in stock i'm confused about how they when stock prices fluctuate how did they make that determination did they give them a discounted amount of stock and then hope that the the price would rise or like how much is possible to to get out of this stock do you have any idea if they're ever going to be able to make that full 50 percent back unfortunately like we don't no, and I don't think the trust, like, you know, the trust will not say, you know, even at it's more hopeful, they don't come close to saying, like, they think for sure it's going to be made whole. Yeah. I think it's just like such, it's such an unknown. They're coming from such, it's coming from such a kind of disadvantage in the first place. Um, you know, the hope is that things will improve and it won't be as disastrous as people thought maybe at one point but there's still a lot to be made up and there's all these other costs from the trust that also get taken out of the the fund there's all these other factors um yeah talk about that it's not just the claimants who get the fire victim trust money it's also lawyers and and who else administrators i'll just wrap up that point that marisa i would say it's important to know the very few people we talk to whether attorneys, trust officials, victims, uh, professors and stuff like that. Very few people, I, I don't know, very few people that we talk to think that victims will be paid 100% of their claims. I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of optimism around that. Um, yeah. Um, well, and you were talking about the emotional impact of all of this. And I think the idea that there's this sort of David and Goliath thing too, where the company isn't even really ever going to be held a hundred percent accountable. That's got to have an emotional impact on the victims of the fires. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that was definitely one frustration I heard a lot. It's like, they felt like they, you know, there was just like all these power players vying for a profit or an advantage in the bankruptcy and then on the stock market and it just feels like they're like caught in the middle and being you know thrown around the people whose lives were actually the most kind of impacted by this are the ones that are just like getting the short end of the stick we used to call it collateral damage i guess it's like Mm -hmm. well you know it's just the cost of doing business sorry exactly uh you you asked about the trust expenses um there's been a lot of reporting about that even before Maurice and I started on this topic, there's a lot of, um, it, it has, what, do we have any numbers? On it? It, it has cost a considerable amount to run the trust. Um, they have a staff in the hundreds of administrators. They, they, they're paying, uh, um, you know, law firms, accounting firms, all these different uh, sort of service companies to, to do the work that they do. Um, one figure that always is what do we got okay so by the end of 2021 they had um administrative spending was at 132 million 
Um, so it, it's a considerable amount of money, and a lot of victims look at that and, and are are frustrated. One that, and those really bills are being paid a hundred percent. I'm sure they're not yeah. paying those forty five <laughs> cents on the dollar. Yeah, right. Um, the trust administrator uh, earns a hundred and twenty five thousand dollar a month salary. So you know that's over a million a month. Like, that yeah. is yeah. gobsmacking. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Um, and who's and paying you know, these fees? Is this coming out of ratepayers? No, this how is coming this straight work? out of that pot trust. of money. Yeah. Right, but where did that money from the trust come from? Like, it's not like P- what? What? How? Where did PG&E find this much, many billions of dollars in cash besides the stock part? It, it was cash that the company had when it went into bankruptcy, and it was a, a limited. Well, I mean, yeah. Ultimately, you could say, yeah, you know, monopoly utilities profits are paid by ratepayers certainly um but the it was as they divvied up pg&e's assets in bankruptcy this was yeah and and some lawyer you know lawyers and some experts we talked to like weren't particularly surprised to hear about these high salaries or this amount of expenditure and you know explain how complicated it can be to run these like huge trusts but i mean it's gone <laughs> it's gone and you know and you know frustration from victims is really understandable when you see those numbers and you're still waiting on just like a fraction of a fraction of that, you know? Yeah. All right. I've got a couple more questions. One is who is watching out for the victims with all of these people feeding at the trough? Who, whose job is it besides you as journalists to cover this stuff and make sure people know what's going on, but whose job is it to hold the trust accountable and to make sure that PG&E pays people what they are entitled to? Well, technically, PG&E is pretty much divorced from, like, they've, this is just the trust that's, so technically PG&E isn't, like, almost, they've kind of washed their hands of this particular part because now that it's with the trust. But, I mean, so technically there's the Trust Oversight Committee, um, which is, you know, this various um, lawyers and one. yeah. Um, the simplest answer is attorneys, I would say. People's yeah. people's fire victims' attorneys. Um, so, like the individual who, people's attorneys, they have to have yeah, lawyers, right? And but but again, this gets pretty complicated because there are a lot of um, law firms that snapped up, you know, hundreds and thousands of clients in the wake of these fires. I mean, it's a it's a whole other area that you can find lots of reporting on. By uh, you know, they come into town, set up offices, billboards, um, etc. And so there is. But 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 that is like kind of the answer to your question, I think, is there the, the, the trust oversight committee that Maurice is talking about that's composed of some of the biggest victims attorneys. Um, there there are questions that we hear from victims a lot and that we haven't really totally explored that much to talk about. But there are there are the questions of uh, for attorneys, you know, every time a, a claimant is a claim is paid, they get a fee. Um, is it easier for them to to instead of having to take all these cases to trial to just um you know collect fees as the trust does its work i guess and and does that lead to does the scale of it just lead to a lack of oversight mm-hmm. um you know, i don't know yeah i mean i think and there's a lot of questions that have been posed throughout um about transparency from the trust you know some have you know tried to intervene tried to um 
ask the judge for more transparency with limited results. And that's still something that's ongoing in the court efforts by um, some victims um, to sort of get more transparency to see exactly how the trust oversight committee or the trust is, you know, being held accountable. Um, but our legal system is just like not a very transparent place and it can be difficult, like so difficult to navigate. And there's so many processes set up that make it pretty hard for an average person to get the answers they're looking for. Um, and so, lawyers are expensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And people have had big, very varying experiences with their attorneys. And yeah. that also really determines how the process goes for you. You know, um, some people have had a lot more success than others. Yeah, some people are, are pleased with the way their attorneys have represented them in front of the trust and others can't say, you know, I can't get in touch with anyone in my law firm or whatever. Right. Um, so it's it's a it's a broad range of experiences when it comes to attorneys and, yeah. and of the incentive structures for them aren't quite clear to us yet. So, well, a lot yeah. of the incentive seems to be packed into the, the, the motive for being paid, you know, on all of these different levels when you're dealing with something a 14 point or a $13.5 billion chunk of money. It just seems like a lot of people are driven by trying to get a piece of it. Um, so I don't know about individual attorneys, but it seems like the structure, the way the structure's set up is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's definitely about money. Um, and money, of course, won't make people totally whole, but it's the best that the legal system has in order to help, you know, alleviate some of the damage that that has been done by the negligence of the of the corporation. But anyway, getting back to you guys and your work as journalists and investigative journalists, local reporters, um, obviously this is a hyper-local story for, for our communities, um, and, and it's our friends and neighbors who, who are part of this story. And I wonder for you, uh, what are some of the best resources that you've come across? What are some of the most helpful sources of information? And how can people keep themselves informed locally about this issue as it hopefully doesn't drag on indefinitely, but you know, it's, we've got years to go here, it seems. Yeah. Um, And one, one thing that is helpful is you can access all of the um, filings and all of the appearances in the bankruptcy case and in in the, sorry, in the fire victim trust proceedings. Um, Sometimes like those legal documents can be kind of hard to access, but they are all like free to access via Kroll, K-R-O-L-L. And that that lets you search all the way back to the beginning. Um, A lot of people who are actually directly involved know how to do that, but just for other members of the public. I mean, I think like it can be hard. I think something that I've heard from experts I've spoken to in this case or like people who study these kind of massive trusts um, or like class action lawsuits is like, you get to the judgment and, you know, a, there's a decision made like, oh, victims are going to get 13.5 billion or whatever it is. And then after that, there's like a little bit less, you know, people kind of just like end it there. And so there's a lot less like coverage and, um, you know, follow up as these to see how these actual like judgments and settlements really play out, um, yeah. which is really, really important thing to do more of, I think. Um, um, I don't know if there's like some other good research. Well, I was actually, I mean, the, the fire victim trust website, uh, is, is actually that, so they had a change. There was a new trustee came on in over the summer, 
you know, the ones with the really high salary, like in July. And she has really made an effort to publish more information, like make little videos, write letters. So, so there's an increasing amount of stuff on the fire victim trust website. So that's, and they also keep a, a tally of how much has been paid out. Um, and it's fairly easy to navigate. So there's that. And then like Marisa was saying, I mean, one thing this, we're both kind of, not, neither of us recovering this bankruptcy. So we're kind of like newcomers to this story. And there's just been a wealth of, um, there was a lot of reporting when the deal was being made. It does feel like there's less now, but at the time it's like the Wall Street Journal was covering it. The Chronicle, the KQED was doing a lot of great reports. Like just, there's all kinds of backstory stuff out there. Um, and so it's, if you're interested, there's plenty to read about. Um, and we're, and we're really grateful that there were so many reporters covering at the time because it gives us resources to, to yeah, access. But, yeah. All right. And how can people continue to follow your coverage? Yeah. Uh, pressdemocrat.com is our, um, our new site and we're, we're definitely continuing to write about this topic. So. All right. Well, thank you both so much. It's wonderful to talk with you and I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I should add, if any of your listeners are victims and want to get in touch with us about something um, on our stories at the bottom of any of our stories is our contact info. Um, so, and my email is andrew.gram, G-R-A-H-A-M at pressdemocrat.com. So. Fantastic. I hope so. And also local fire victims, if you want to talk to us more at KZYX, definitely be in touch as well. We'd love to put your voices on the air. So thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. And that was Andrew Graham and Marisa Endicott of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat talking about their recent coverage of the PG&E Fire Victims Trust. You can see their articles on Sunday, November 27th and Monday, November 28th in the Press Democrat and also ongoing. This has been Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next Friday for Forthright Radio with Joy LeClaire. She will be talking with Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, about his latest book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. That's on Forthright Radio with Joy LeClaire next Friday morning at this time, 9 o'clock here on KZYX. And once again, thank you so much for listening to Byline Mendocino this morning and to all of KZYX's programming. I appreciate you joining me. Take care. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.